Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. So I think in that way, saying yes to my own transness like allowed me to say yes to changing like the the etymology of how I think about the world you know like mm. how I use language how mm. much is possible like wh- whether I should be calling something mine it, it's not going to change the whole world for me to change how I speak and think about things but it is going to change something inherent in me Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and changed them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. (laughs) And this is Pixel Therapy. It is time for our monthly Patreon shout out. This is our special thank you to the fine folks who subscribed at the name in the credits tier or above on patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod for the month of July. And this month we're giving an extra special thank you to Val and Genevieve. Woo! Woohoo! A huge thank you to your to you both for thank your you. support of our little show. We really appreciate it. If you we love you. We do love you. <laughs> We do love you. It's not a parasocial relationship. (laughs) We do actually love you. If you want to get your name in the credits, head over to Pixel Therapy Patreon, where you can check out our plethora of perks that start with access to a monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month. In the July episode, Spencer and I bared (laughs) our souls and shared our deepest, darkest gaming confessions. That sounds so, it makes it sound so (laughs) dark. Like we really went, played, we're depraved. We are depraved gamers. Uh, yeah, so if that sounds like something that you fucking perverts want to listen to. <laughs> it's really uh, not. It's really yeah. not. Because <laughs> Spencer, you have to sell it. Oh, right, right. It's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, if y'all want to check that out, uh, then pop on over to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod uh, and sign up today for just $2 a month. If that's not in the cards for you, though, it does help to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you write us a review, we may just have to read it on the show sometime. Mm -hmm. But no matter how you choose to support us, just remember that we are oh so happy to have you all here. Thank you for listening. That is the end of my spiel. (laughs) It is. That's it. Wrap it up. Uh, It's time now to get cozy to pull up an armchair and feel free to lie down on your couch. Spencer and I are going to talk about our feelings. Spencer, what's going on? Listen, Jamie, yeah. I'm mad at you. Whoa, why? <laughs> Just kidding. I can never be mad at Jamie. Like what? Oh my God. Even? I don't even know what I'm saying, but okay. <laughs> but listen, so as y'all know, I downloaded Ratchet and Clank, a rift apart, which is uh, 2021's latest, or I mean, latest iteration of Insomniac Games' uh, lauded um, series, Ratchet mm-hmm. and Clank. Um, yes. And I didn't start playing it for weeks because um, ch- 
Chicory came out. I kind of, we started playing that instead. We made an episode about it a couple episodes ago. And it's just been sitting on my PS5. And I asked Jamie like, oh, like you've played Ratchet and Clank. Like, what do you think? And Jamie was like, eh, not much to say about it. It's good. And to me, I was like, oh, like it must not be that great if, if Jamie Jamie's saying it's not much to say about it. Okay. But then I was bored the other night <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to boot this up, see what it's like. Y'all, Ration and Clank A Rift Apart is one of my games of the year for 2021. Oh, wow. I, I am absolutely enamored with this game. Um, and so I'm here to defend my... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I gotta, I gotta stop you here because you're making it sound like I was like, this game is garbage. Throw it out. Which was not, not, not even the Let's context fight. of the Let's conversation <laughs> that we were having. We were specifically having a conversation about what we wanted to chat about on the podcast. And all I was saying is that while Ratchet and Clank was a Beautiful game. Beautiful. I had a ton of fun with it. It wasn't something I felt like I had a deep, I had a lot, I didn't have a lot to say about it in the context of the podcast. I didn't feel, and, and so and we were also like talking about it in relation to Chicory, which I was mm. like, I do have a lot to say so about deep. Chicory, which was a very deep experience, <laughs> as you all know from our conversation a few weeks ago. So I just need it on the record that I'm not <laughs> some ratchet and clank rift apart hater. I think it's an awesome game. Uh, it's just like, it's one of those games that is just like, it's just fun. I just like felt like I was kind of on a roller coaster through the whole thing. Games are supposed to be fun. And Ratchet and Clank <laughs> Rift Apart really reminded me of that. Um, let me take a beat to just give folks the lowdown on the game. Um, so essentially, um, I mean, it's what's extra special, I think, to me is that um, Ratchet and Clank as a series has been around since like P PlayStation 1, uh, I would say like 2001, 2002. Um, my first Ratchet and Clank game was uh, 2003. I played Ratchet and Clank Going Commando, <laughs> which um, <laughs> what they, they basically were um, hired mercenaries, um, protecting the galaxy. Um, and this game is a, this series, um, uh, would best be described as a third person action shooter. Um, it does have some platforming and puzzle elements. Um, and in this game, so Ratchet is a, uh, fuzzy cat-like creature called a Lombax. And, um, he's the only Lombax, uh, that he knows of in his universe. Um, and, um, essentially his people are very technologically advanced and, um, they had sort of hidden themselves in, an, in another dimension in order to keep, uh, their knowledge, uh, and their people safe, uh, from being eradicated, um, by, um, another, I don't know if it's like everyone was trying to wipe them out or specific specific uh, aliens were trying to wipe them out. But essentially, he's all alone. Um, he has a little robot friend named Clank. Um, and the two of them go on adventures, um, saving the universe, um, using lots of different guns. Um, and I, I would say this game, it's it's like a Pixar movie, especially Rift Apart. I mean, mm -hmm. playing it on the PS5, like I think... Um, uh, just the way it's able to showcase, um, like something like I thought 
Astro's Playroom, right? It's like it's mm-hmm. included with the PS5, and it's like a very visually stunning game. It really shows you um, the capacity of the PS5 graphically. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the games that have been coming out this year, um, uh, like a lot of them are really hyper realistic, like focusing mm-hmm. on creating human faces. Um, a lot of them can be kind of dark. Um, and so you don't really get to see the brilliance very often of, of the PS5's capabilities, at least so far with the games that have been coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, but with Ratchet and Clank, I mean, every single planet, I feel like I was just standing there, mouth agape, like taking yeah. it all in. Yeah. Um, the level of detail in the world from the physics um, to the just the patterns and use of color, um, even off into the distance, uh, like the, the the depth of the worlds that you're in, um, it's just it, breathtaking, just mm-hmm. dazzling. Like every mm-hmm. word that means fucking incredible. Yeah, I, it's eye <laughs> um, candy. The whole game is eye candy. Eye candy, yeah. Just uh, um, it just felt good to be in the. It just feels good to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that felt really refreshing. Um, and something that I really love about the game, and I think the series as a whole is, um. Like, I don't really play a lot of shooters. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's for a few reasons. I get, I'm easily anxious uh, or triggered. I, I don't like um, simulated violence very much. Um, I've, I mean, I've, of course, I play God of War and The Last of Us. So I'm not saying that, like, I'm, I can't play violent games. It's just that mm-hmm. um, shooting, just for the sake of shooting, like, I need to have a really good reason to shoot a gun at someone. Um, and so it's just not really my bag. Um, but Ration and Clank is pretty much 90% shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's such a joyful and affirming and, um, like, there's such a focus on friendship and chosen family and um, just kind of, it has this very like slapstick kind of tongue in cheek tone. And it just sort of, I, I don't know many games where I feel like I'm able to get the silly fun as well as the more serious emotional beats. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a shooter, which is something that I don't typically vibe with. Like just everything about it just works. Um, and I mean, I haven't played the game since like 2003, 2004. So just the fact that um, 2004, almost almost 20 years later, mm-hmm. um, like to pick it up, like there were things about it that I didn't even realize until I picked it up, having not played it in 15 plus years, that it was like my body was just remembering, like my hands were remembering. Oh, wow. um, and uh, like some of the parallel, like I think some of the critique this game has gotten is, um, so the, the developer is Insomniac Games, and uh, they also made the Spyro series. They did 2018 Spider-Man, um, just like really awesome, um, iconic uh, development studio. Um, but the critiques have been like, oh, this Ratchet and Clank isn't that much different from like previous versions of Ratchet and Clank. Um, like they haven't really reinvented the formula in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just like, hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Like, especially a game that's been as long running as this one. I think there are probably lots of fans like me who maybe haven't picked up the game since we were kids, now have this awesome new console and are turning it on and are just completely like it was such a rush of nostalgia and wonder. And I I felt like a kid again playing the game. Mm -hmm. And that was just something that I wasn't expecting. Like I, I love these characters. Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, with Ratchet specifically, 
So, like I said, he's a Lombax member of this this race, and um, at the be- at the beginning of the game, um, it's essentially like the two Ratchet and Clank are in this parade, sort of celebrating their feats of heroism. Um, and Clank has made a gift for Ratchet. Um, it's a it's a tool called the Dimensionator, and essentially, it allows you to open up rifts between universes, um, and with the intent of helping Ratchet find his family and. Um, I think something really sweet about the game is that, um, like, it's like Ratchet and Clank are family to each other. And Mm -hmm. um, there's this kind of um, shock initially on Ratchet's side where he's like, uh, and later you find out that it's like, you know, of course he wants to find his family in the abstract sense. But his life, which is very full and rich um, and surrounded by people that he loves and who love him, um, is one that for the large part has existed without, yeah, it's existed entirely without um, having his, his people in his life. And so like, he doesn't even know if he, um, like how he would feel meeting them or if they would be what he expected or if he would be what they expected and um, all of the things that could go wrong and the fear there. Um, And it's just like, it's a very sweet game and yet it still explores these facets of, you know, belonging and, um, what it means to be family and, um, just the nuances of, um, being friends with someone, having a best friend that's been part of your life for decades, um, Mm -hmm. like the relationship between him and Clank. And I think as an adult gamer picking this up 15 years later, um, I just, just seeing that, seeing these characters also, sort of not aging in the literal sense, but um, just sort of considering what they mean to each other. And um, I don't know. I just, I just really enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if you yeah. had anything you wanted to, to speak to. I know I just talked for a long time. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, I, I I completely agree with everything that you're saying. I think uh this game was such so many of the games that we play that we talk about on this podcast, I think have, you know, much the narratives are very dark or we're, we're talking, we're talking about characters who are going through something really traumatic or painful, or they're exploring like emotions that are, that are on the darker side. Or I don't know. I don't want to equate them with like emotions that are generally perceived as more negative. They're going through something that's sad or that's making them upset or that's making them deal with, um, with troublesome things that have happened. They're dealing with real challenges and it's not that Russian mm-hmm. clink aren't dealing with challenges, but there's such a lightness to how mm-hmm. it's all um, presented. You're never, you know, you're never really scared for them mm-hmm. in a real way. Like they're going to overcome the obstacles that are presented to them. And I think that can be seen as being more childish or uh, immature, mm-hmm. but I think this store, you know, cartoonish, right. Or for kids, but I think it's still a story that really resonates and they are emotionally complex characters. You know, you're alluding to some of, uh, Ratchet's feelings that he has about finding the other Lombaxes. There's, um, a whole narrative set up around the new characters that they introduce that they meet, they meet basically their, uh, parallel universe versions of themselves and those characters are not operating as a team yet but how we watch those characters get to know each other and become a team is Mm. i think is really um 
it's really emotional and, and warm and it yes. feels really good to play it. And I think that, you know, there's certainly a lot to be lauded in the quote unquote darker or uh, mm-hmm. more serious quote unquote stories that we talk about on this podcast and that I think it held up in the video game industry. But there's also something really special about having a fun, warm experience that still feels authentic and genuine and really heartfelt mm-hmm. and that doesn't have to put you in such a dark headspace to be able to do it. Um, and for all that Ratchet and Clank are shooters, the guns are not, you don't feel like anyone's actually being killed, right? Like the yeah. enemies kind of just poof, disappear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the The guns themselves are very, very playful. Uh, there's, there's one game in the game, one gun in the game that is like a topiary sprinkler. I was, I, you really read my mind. I was thinking about the topiary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It turns uh, enemies into shrubs. <laughs> yeah. So it like freezes them in place for a little bit. So you can kind of deal with somebody else for a minute. Or if you want to do a lot of extra damage, um, there's, there's a gun that like shoots out, um, little robots that will help you fight or mm-hmm. um there's another one that shoots it's called mr fun guy and it shoots out oh, of yeah. uh, fungus <laughs> little mushroom uh, guy little shoots. mushroom guy <laughs> um so there's there's such a strong element of play mm-hmm. and fun to the game that i really you know i was smiling almost the whole time i was playing it and i think that's rare mm-hmm. and i do think it's um kind of to the I worry that the game's going to get short shrift when it comes to awards and stuff like that because it's not tackling a quote unquote like we because we equate gore and mm. darkness mm-hmm. with adult and mm-hmm. serious which is actually a really immature way to look at it but mm-hmm. because that's how I think uh the video game industry at large tends to look at these things I worry that the game won't get the same kind of award attention that it that it probably really deserves because they made such a like such a smooth and complete experience that was an like I don't remember being frustrated at any point in the game no. it was just a completely joyful and polished experience um, that deserves, I think, a lot of positive attention. But I, you know, hearing people talk about the game, I've heard a lot of folks say, like, I love the game, but it's not going to be my game of the year. Mm. And and to some extent, like, yeah, this might not be my number one game of the year. And that's such a subjective question anyway, about like what resonates with each of us. But I do think it's a little bit sad that this game will kind of get viewed as being more for kids or being mm-hmm. a bit more childish just because it's not full of blood and guts. Yeah. Like I think you've absolutely nailed it. Like two things there. One, um, just this emphasis on the smoothness, how how it emphasizes that games are supposed to be fun, even right down to the settings. Um, it has uh it has, you know, easy, medium, hard, but it also has an easy mode where uh you can never die. Um, just sort of letting you know, hey, like, um, this game isn't supposed to be frustrating you or making you hate yourself. Like we want you to enjoy it. And if that means you don't want to die or don't want to have to deal with the stress of, of dying in these overwhelming um, shootout situations, like that is totally okay. Um, And it also has a function where um, there are these sections that are puzzles. Um, You can press pause and just, there's an option in the menu that just says skip puzzle. Um, And it has absolutely no um, ramifications or penalties on the game. Um, They just want you to have a fucking good time. Um, Mm -hmm. The second thing you touched on there was the fact that because it is lush and because it is positive and because um, it has this almost kind of Pixar-esque quality to it, there's this assumption 
inherently that it is not for adults or that it's childish or for kids. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I really felt the, like the game um, was talking about how, like to me, what resonated was it felt like um, as an adult, it can be hard to make friends, um, especially when you've been living your life in a certain way um, for a long amount of time. Uh, you don't know what it means to reach out to others or to change your state of being. Um, and I feel like this game has so much compassion um, for people who struggle with anxiety or self-worth or being mm-hmm. social, um, like what it means to have a partner, to be a team. Um, mm-hmm. Like it it explores all of that so well. Um, learning to trust after trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like it It really, I think any kid or adult, like as an adult suffering from anxiety and trying to learn how to be a functioning uh, person in a relationship where there's reciprocal give and take, um, understanding that while my trauma is not my fault, healing from it is, and I owe it to the people around me to be a better person for them and to them. I think this game is an incredible tool for uh, exploring that within yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, it's stunning. Um, I I love it. I I have nothing but good things to say about the game. Um, I also <laughs> I I had this moment when I was playing the game, and I, I remember when I was a kid. Um, I feel like I definitely had a crush on Ratchet when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he's a cutie. Yeah, he's a cutie. And the thing about him is like he's really. Um, like technically proficient, like he's incredibly smart. He's a, he's a mechanic um, Mm -hmm. and he carries around a big wrench. Um, He's also like the best sharpshooter in the universe. (laughs) Like he just, he knows his way around guns and he loves using them. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's also just this easygoing, super positive, super friendly, um, like really genuine person. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, God, like, Get me a man like that, <laughs> like knows his way around a gun and can fucking use it. But at the yeah. same time, will just be in your corner and never make you feel um, like you can't keep up with him or that you're not supposed to, like you're not on the same level. Like, yeah, I just love that kind of um, Ratchet and Clank both are non-toxic masculinity <laughs> examples <laughs> oh my god yeah 100 and they're heroes too like yes. they are the they are the top dogs of their universe like nobody is a better hero than ratchet and clank and yet they're both like they're pretty in touch with their feelings yeah. like you know obviously clank's a robot and he's more analytical but they yeah they're both very supportive they're incredibly kind to the characters that they interact with and always like saying things to try to lift them up and like yes. help them be better versions of themselves and and like and, and like encouraging them mm-hmm. uh yeah that's so true so true <laughs> And I love the kind of the games, um, how it touches on the, the the depth of the relationship between Ratchet and Clank. Um, like there's scenes where um, like Clank will comment like, oh, Ratchet would love to see that or, oh, shoot, I, I'm talking to myself out loud, like just like Ratchet would do. And uh, <laughs> like those are just a couple examples. I feel like I'm not encapturing it totally, but it's like this kind of um, nods to the fact that they've been together, been best friends for a long time. And they mm-hmm. know these little things about each other um, that I feel like, especially the through line of having played the game years and years ago, um, like there's just kind of acknowledgement of how long the game has been around. Um, 
it's just really cool to see like that that kind of growth of the characters like it it's it's just awesome um and another thing one more thing okay (laughs) um so as jamie mentioned you meet um the parallel universe version of yourselves um there's another lombax um named rivet who is the first ever lombax that ratchet has ever met which is pretty cool um and there's another little robot name of kt um and uh so the two of them partner up rivet is like unrecognizably voiced by jennifer hale also known as fem shep mm-hmm. um i mean the whole cast is fucking incredible but yeah. i have to say rivet's voice acting i mean wow just yeah really cool all-star cast there too 100 mm-hmm. percent agree so I highly recommend Rift Apart. Um, just such a breath of fresh air. Uh, I think it gives so much. And if someone tells you it tries to write it off as just a game for kids or because it's brightly colored that it's not worth your time, um, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Some strong words from Spencer. And and just to, uh, you know, combat the slander that Spencer like gave at the beginning of <laughs> the podcast herself. Yeah. <laughs> I also do really recommend this game and really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. All gold stars all around. Gold stars all around. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. So uh, just so I'm still just thinking about this game, but Jamie, um, we diverged this week. We played two different games, yes. um, which I'm still trying to get over, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> even though I guess you could still like, I guess technically we both played Ratchet and Clank. So yes. I, I still got my wish. I just played but, it um, a month and a half ago. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what you've been playing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, funny enough, I, I think I have also played what, what could potentially be like my top game of the year. Uh, it's still in contention. I'm constantly thinking about this, but, uh, Mm. but I just played death's door, which, uh, is a 3d top down action game developed by acid nerve, uh, who previously made Titan souls published by devolver digital and currently available on Xbox and PC. Industry plays a young crow uh, who works as a reaper for mm. a commission that that seems to kind of exist um, outside of the natural world. Um, it's it's depicted as this kind of bureaucratic office uh, where there's all of these crows oh. who are sitting at desks and typing away on their computers. How? With their beaks or with their wings? <laughs> with their wings. Their okay. wings are like little fingers. All right, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and assigning uh, the reapers who go out into the natural world souls to go reap. Um, so you actually start the game like going into work for your first day and you have to go through security and go up to the office and then you get your assignment and, uh, the crow that gives you your assignment is like really surprised. Like, oh, you have to go reap like a giant soul. Like, mm. good luck. Like mm. those are tough. Um, but remember, uh, you know, the crow reminds you, remember if you fail, uh, and you don't get the soul, you have to stay in the natural world until you get the soul and, uh, that means that you'll age. So when you're in the natural world, you'll age and, and you'll eventually die. So you, good luck. <laughs> go on about your day. Oh my God. So you go up to the natural world and I'm okay. not spoiling anything because this is all kind of like the premise, the setup for the game, right? So you go up to the natural world, you find the soul that you're supposed to reap. You have what's essentially a, a boss fight right at the beginning of the game. You get, you, but you succeed. Mm. You go to get the soul and this older, much larger crow swoops in and grabs the soul before oh, you can get it. And he runs away. So you go back to the commission and you're like, my soul got stolen, basically. And they're like, you know, sucks to be you. Like, you've got to get this soul or you can't, you know, come back. Like, we have to process this soul. 
So you go back into the natural world and you find the big crow. Okay. And he's standing in front of the door and he tells you that this door is death's door and he needed your soul because he's trying to unlock death's door. Uh, Because a long time ago, he was a young reaper like you. Yeah. And he was sent to get a soul, but the soul evaded him and went through death's door before he could get it and bring it back to the commission. Mm. And so now he needs your help. He's like, well, if you want to help me, I need three other of these giant souls. So if you want to help me and go get them, then we can open death's door together and you'll get your soul and I'll get mine and we'll be all set. So hold up. <laughs> this commission is preventing souls from moving on. Yeah. So this is, this is like hmm. a big piece of the game, right? This is so- like, <laughs> sorry. I just feel like this is like when you're working in a, in corporate America and you reach a point where you're like, hold up. I should maybe question what's going yeah. on. Higher question higher. my place in this larger hierarchy. Yeah. Right? Anyway, sorry, sorry. Keep going. I, well, no, but I think you're touching on something that becomes like a core piece of the narrative of the game. Like as you, as this little young reaper go about your business of trying to collect these large souls, um, you start to learn more about the way the world, the natural world operates, the ways in which it's not operating. Um, you quickly find Find out that these giant souls exist. Each of the giant souls is characterized by kind of these three main bosses in the game. The first one that you go to is um, is this witch mm. uh, uh, of urns, and mm. she. Uh, well, you quickly find out that she's been hoarding soul energy. And that's actually how all three of these great souls have come to be. They are masters of their domains and they are hoarding the soul energy in their domain and not allowing the souls to get reaped. You also start to learn that actually not a soul, not a lot of souls have been getting reaped lately. Uh, There's not a lot of work for the Crow Commission and new souls aren't coming into the world. And why is that happening? Why is the world dying? And so as the game goes on, you like steadily unravel all of this lore and mystery. And, And the way the game doles it out is very. You know, you find artifacts here and there that might tell you a little bit about the world. You find characters that you can talk to that might share a little piece of the narrative. There's, um, you know, puzzles and mysteries to solve within the spaces. There's a lot of things that are kind of tucked away or hidden. Uh, the game, you know, I said it's like a top-down action adventure, so that a lot of the times you're kind of looking at the game from almost an isometric angle, but you might walk up to a cliffside and if you kind of go around the corner of the cliff, suddenly the perspective of the camera changes and you can see there's a whole path there that you could take to go find something new. Mm. And it's, it's that kind of stuff. It's like the, the, the promise that there's going to be something around the corner and there might be some tidbit of information that might help fill in and, you know, color in a little bit more of this world and this, this larger mystery of what's going on and why is this happening to the world? Um, that really kept like, it kept me engrossed even beyond finishing, even beyond rolling credits of the game. Um, you, after you finish the game, there's actually more, there's like more mystery to unravel. Uh, when you, when you defeat the final boss, you pick up a key that then unlocks another door and suddenly you can, you can change the world in a new way and find all these new things. And it was that constant promise of like, what might be next, what might be behind the next door that, that kept me going through the game. I think it was like, 12 maybe 15 hours that i put into it Mm. um really enjoyed every bit of it and and i think uh one thing that i'm especially intrigued by with the game is that it's kind of like dark souls light Mm. and for the first time i could kind of like start to see like what people really like about dark souls but also this game is not dark souls 
In um, what way is it Dark Souls light? It's Dark Souls light because a lot of the story is told through this this world building, through finding bosses, through finding characters to interact with, through finding little mysteries and stuff. That's that's all very Dark Souls. The lore is like very hidden in the world, and you mm-hmm. have to find it and kind of put it together for yourself. Mm-hmm. But there's also the fact that the the combat is quite challenging Mm -hmm. in the game. Um, You start out with uh, a health bar that's got four little notches on it. That means you can get hit four times and then you're going to die. Health is not super common Mm -hmm. in the game. Uh, There's these pots that you can find. You can find seeds throughout the map and then plant a seed in a pot. And that grows a a health flower that'll Mm. refill your health. But those are pretty sparse and scattered throughout the maps. Um, Going through, uh, you know, as you move through the map, you find more doors. Mm. Um, That's kind of the whole thing. The crows travel through these doors. Um, And so you... You initially come into the natural world through a door that goes from the commission to the natural world. But as you find more doors, you can take those doors back to the commission. And it's at at the commission branch that you go in and you can like level up your stats and, you know, buy upgrades and stuff like that. And the doors also work as like a fast travel system. So Mm, nice. there's, There's like a whole map to the commission area, but it's much smaller than the natural world. So the door leads back to one part of the commission. You could walk over to another part and go through a different door and come out in another part of the natural world map. It was kind of how that works. Sick. Um, but when you go through the doors and travel back and forth from the commission, that refills your health as well. But those are the only ways that you can get health. The plants are kind of traveling back to the commission. <clears throat> when you travel back to the commission, it resets all the enemies mm. as well. So that's a very Dark Souls element, right? Mm. To like you rest or whatever and and you get your health back, but the trade-off is that the enemies are all coming back to you. Mm. Um, the reason I say it's Dark Souls light is that unlike Dark Souls, I'd say the checkpointing in uh, Death Store is way more generous. So a lot of times that you you always respawn from the last uh, from the closest uh, door that mm. you're near, and usually those doors are placed in areas that are it's not too difficult to get back to it. They also have some really really smart level and like map design Mm. where as you're progressing through the map, you might be getting far from the location of a door, but you'll be able to unlock a quick path back to the door. Eventually, like you'll hit these like kind of benchmarks where Mm. you reach a spot where like you pull a chain and it opens a gate that was closed before. And now if you die, there's a straight path from the door back to where you are right now, rather than having to go on the winding route and all the enemies that you had to get through to get here. So it does really smart things like that that I really appreciated. So even when I was having a challenging time or dying a lot, it usually felt like I could get back to the challenging point pretty quickly. And that's the thing that always frustrates me a lot about. uh, It's why I have trouble playing roguelites. It's what's maybe like avoid the Dark Souls games is the idea that like, okay, I'm having a challenge with this specific element of a fight uh, or this specific boss, but then I die and (sighs) I have to go through all these enemies that, that I already know how to be to get back to that point where I can keep practicing the thing that I'm tough at Mm -hmm. or that I'm feeling challenged by. Mm -hmm. And I think it does a good job of not putting you in those situations or when it does the fights that you're going through are kind of teaching you the same stuff that you're going to have to use for the difficult fight. So it's kind of, it's kind of putting you through a gauntlet Mm -hmm. of practice to get better at what you're going to have to face. And to me, that's, that was just like, I, I very rarely got frustrated with the game. Like it was very challenging, but I always felt like I could get it because I felt like I was going to get enough practice to get to the point where I could be good at it. And then as you get better and you start having fights where an enemy that 
you know, it, they introduce enemies periodically that are kind of like sub bosses. And then those will mm. become a regular enemy that you're just facing oh, wow. in encounters with other enemies. But it does it all so steadily that, yeah. that there were enemies that like the first five to 10 times I fought them, I would get, I would, I would get hit at least two or three times, which is detrimental, right? Like now mm-hmm. I'm only down to like one health or like even, even I think at the max, I only had five or six health wow. notches. So it was never like you could get hit very much. But you, you know, this enemy might hit me three or four times the first few times I fought them. And then by the, you know, two hours later, I'm encountering them with six other enemies and I'm killing everyone without getting hit at all. Yeah, that that progression that you can see, that's really cool. Yeah, so, and the art style of the game is fantastic. The music in the game is fantastic. I'm going to be listening to this score for ages, the way it like ramps up Mm. in key moments. All of the the characters are all designed so in such an uh, I, I don't know you just have to Google the game because the art sounds <laughs> it uses kind of muted colors everything's mm. got kind of a, a gray or green kind of pale to it in most of the areas but they're also like the way your little crow moves like he moves like a crow oh cool yeah <laughs> like he just kind of like bobs in an interesting way in yeah. cutscenes he'll be like cocking his head oh, like a bird does yeah. Um, it, it, so it's got this kind of like cute element to it. And the game was ultimately made by two people. Wow. Which blows my mind. They, they had like some consulting and other help with, I think it was like a team of maybe at most 10 people at one time, but like there's two people's names who run through the credits first and they hold all of the main roles for making this game. And that's just such a feat. Speaking, um, yeah, especially the complexity of the level design and, and stuff that you've yeah. been speaking to. That's incredible. Yeah. The the TLC that went into this game is just bananas. So yeah, I can't recommend Death Store enough. I really from everything from a story level to the combat, and I just it, it's rare that I get really invested in the combat aspect of a game, but the mm-hmm. way this set up the challenges, it just I don't know, it really like tickled the right spot of my brain and I really, really appreciated the level of challenge that it provided um, and how, and the care that it took in mm. presenting that challenge. I think that's rare. What do you think? Um, like the way you describe this game, it sort of, a lot of it sort of makes me think of Hades, a lot of the mm-hmm. way that it, the, the functions and the story and the sort of progression. Um, but I know that Hades was a game that was very frustrating for you and ultimately made you walk away f- or made you feel like you needed a break and, and so you haven't come back to it yet, even though you have yeah. aspirations of platinum on <laughs> it because you love super giant games so much. Yes. Um, I listen, see? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, what makes Death Door different? What makes Death Door different is kind of all of those little, the the TLC that I'm talking about with the mm. way they let you get back to the challenging parts ex- with more expedience. Mm. Um, what the challenge that I kept having with Hades was feeling like I had to go through so much time and energy with enemies that I felt like I had mostly mastered to get back to something that I was finding challenging and not having, not dying so quickly at the point that it got challenging that I didn't feel like I could really try to master the aspects of the game that I was finding challenging. And I, I, wasn't finding good ways to try to master those things because a lot of it came down to the big boss fights in Hades or where I was feeling especially challenged. And 
you can't really replicate that. I didn't feel like I could replicate those fights anywhere else in the game to get more practice with them. Yeah. And there was no way to just get back to that fight and practice it. There's there's a way that Death Store lets you master things and like encourages you to become a master at at specific tactics um that I don't think Hades is doing in the same way. And Hades is trying to do a different thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Um but that's just for me personally, I find it really frustrating when I don't when I know I'm bad at a specific thing, but I don't feel like I have the I'm not being given the time that I would like to be able to practice it and master it. Totally. Yeah. Totally. There's there's one other thing that I really liked about this story that I just wanted to mention that is just kind of another like really cute thing that it does. You're ultimately going around and, and reaping these these giant souls. You're trying to locate these three big bosses in the game and all of them are characters who have been masters of the do- their domain for a very long time. Mm. They've been around for a very long time. Um, and they've the the story or like the lore of the world is that when a soul exists past the point that it should have moved on, mm. it becomes demonic and corrupted. Mm. Right. And so that that makes the characters more power hungry. Mm. They become more evil. They start to mistreat the folks who live in their lands because they're so focused on hoarding power. And so they do need to be reaped. Their lives do need to come to an end. And so there's this kind of like um, thematic uh, arc to the game about how like life does need to end. And that is a natural cycle of life. And when you kill the bosses, it's not this, um, it's not a, you're not reveling in that moment after the boss is killed. There's a grave digger who comes and like shows up and there's a little cutscene with him. And he says a few words uh. about the character and, and how they were before they became corrupted and what was important to them, like eulogizes them yeah. and their body is laid out in the arena where you just wow. killed them, like presented in this really peaceful way. And they're at rest now and their soul has gotten to move on. And I just, I thought that was such an interesting thing to do. I think, a lot of games that are really combat focused, like you're supposed to revel in the glory yeah. of like the lives that you're taking or the blood that you're spilling. There's no ceremony to that. There's deaths. no right. And and so I thought that was such an interesting and nice touch that this game was like saying like death is an important part of life. And actually, like, you know, you can when you become obsessed with your own power and the length of your own life, like how that, how that corrupts someone. Um, and, and when someone's life ends, like that's a moment for respect, regardless of how it happened or, or, you know, I guess they're even saying like, okay, these people did terrible things, but we're going to take a moment to recognize like who they were and what mm. they brought to the world. I don't know. I just thought it was, thought it was interesting and and something that was really rare in the game space yeah. to be acknowledging death in that way or, you know, ultimately acknowledging life. Yeah. And the fact that you ended a life, I don't know, just the, the mm-hmm. way that you mentioned that the way the the body is arranged and eulogized, I mean, it, it feels like it could really drive home, you know, the weight of what you're doing. Like, we, like you're not always aware as you're playing through a game, you're just, you're just thinking about getting to the next checkpoint or reaching the next um, level and um, combat just becomes another thing that you're doing um just I, I just the intentionality around that and the opportunity it presents to kind of um just meditate on that a bit is really cool really fascinating yeah yeah so that's death's door really special game i'm, I'm really i'm being gatekept by <laughs> being a non-pc non-xbox haver yeah i mean i think 
I think this game <laughs> is an argument to get an Xbox. And I think that Xbox is going to keep making that argument this year. I mean, Shit. I'm just looking at so many games that are coming to Game Pass yeah. that are coming to Xbox. This is not a Game Pass game. I did mm-hmm. have to just buy this game, but it was, you know, worth the $20 for sure. I had no <laughs> problem paying that. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's really interesting the moves that Xbox is making right now, especially in the indie game space. Um, and yeah, I haven't really turned my PlayStation on for games in like three weeks. Wow. Which is rare. Yeah. Very rare. Shit. All right. Yeah. All righty. <laughs> Time to move into our interview for this week. Uh, Today, our guest is Ange Roll, an apiarist and workplace consultant who manages They Keep Bees, uh, which is a Massachusetts-based apiary raising resilient and adaptive bees. Ange applies their learnings as a beekeeper to their consulting work to help organizations reimagine their business structures, taking cues from ecology to cultivate work cultures of cooperative power. It is fascinating stuff, and our conversation with Ange was wide-ranging, covering everything from beekeeper TikTok trends colony communication structures, the inequities and absurdities that exist in beekeeping and beyond, and the wealth of knowledge that orcs and individuals can learn from our fuzzy honey-making friends. And I suppose a video game probably slips into the conversation (laughs) once or twice, too. This is Pixel Therapy, after all. So without further ado, here's our interview with Antrol. Hello to... Our wonderful guest, thank you so much for joining us in the Pixel Therapy Studio. Um, to start things off, we typically ask people to, to tell us what your name and your pronouns are. Yeah, totally. So, uh, hi everyone. My name is Anne Troll. Um, I use they and them pronouns, and I run a little business called They Keep Bees in Montague, Massachusetts, and in like South Central South Florida. And uh, tell us about They Keep Bees. What's it all? What's it all about? How How did it start? Um, they keep me started as like a little passion project side, side. I don't, I would, I would hesitate to call it a hobby because mm. I, I have ADHD. So it, it's it more like it was an obsession. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, you know, like to get a hobby and then like turn it into a business. That's yeah. Kind of the, that's my thing. Um, yeah. So anyway, it, it started out as this like interest and sort of like magical thing that I was just completely obsessed with and went down many learning rabbit holes about. And then um, a few and I've, I've run other farm projects and collaborated on other farm projects before with with folks. And um, a few years ago, I got a grant to like try out different ways of raising bees. Um, mm. And that grant snowballed into um doing a lot more queen rearing. So we raise queen bees specifically at They Keep Bees. Um, And there's a a big demand for the skill in the industry. And so I uh, slowly worked my way into um, raising a few hundred queen bees every year. Uh, We work part-time in the Southeast uh, in Florida, and then we migrate up the coast uh, and work part of the year in the Northeast. Our home base is here in the Northeast. Um, yeah, and we raise queen bees uh, in both climates that are uh, bred from adaptive bees in each place. Um, and we um, teach people about bees and we do all of the other uh, rural beekeeper stuff like beeswax and honey and 
all the fun um, stuff, all those fun sticky things <laughs> uh, that are part of it. But but yeah, our primary focus is really uh, raising queens, working on the diversity and resilience of the genetic stock in the Northeast in particular, um, and teaching other people how to do that so we can actually like create um, a bit more more equanimity in who has the skills to propagate sustainable apiaries or beekeeping businesses. Mm. And when you say who gets the skills, like, do you feel like typically like, beekeeping as a skill has been hard to access for lots of people yes. or gatekept <laughs> in certain ways? Yeah, definitely. I would say gatekept. Um, it is, uh, it's a really, it's a tough industry to crack into. It's, mm. um, I think like, like any farming, uh, you, often see folks who have to come from some kind of wealth to be able to even break into the industry and be mm. able to afford to be a farm worker and learn all of the skills that they would need to move into being like a farm owner. Um, so there's a lot of gatekeeping. Uh, there is a lot of um, white masculinity culture in, mm. in beekeeping as an industry in, in the United States, because uh, it's a massive industry, particularly something called pollination, where people mm. travel all over the country with um, their honeybees and do pollination circuits for like monocrop agriculture, almonds, apples, blueberries, cranberries, things Wait, like so that. like you'll take your bees on a tour and pollinate people's crops? Yo, it's, it is nuts. So <laughs> <laughs> bees people are the new will. rock stars, people. <laughs> people will uh, load those big beehives that you, you think about, um, the big beehives that you think about when you close your eyes and I say think about a beehive it's like a mm. white box with a mm. lid in the bottom that's called a Langstroth hive and those things are about 120 to 150 pounds when they're like full of bees and food right mm. so like they will load um, hundreds or thousands of those onto semi trucks and drive them from like all over the country out wow. to California in February to pollinate almonds which um all, the almond industry is like nested on top of um, parts of Southern California that have been in drought for ages. Y'all um, don't buy almond milk. It's a complicated thing. Uh, yeah, it's complicated. And, <laughs> if you have to drink actually, almond milk, I get it. I don't judge yeah, you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I have very much taken this stance in the industry where I'm like, beekeepers love their bees and farmers like are have this commitment to earth but like a lot of people are making really stark compromises right now to like mm. stay in these lanes that really need to change um so totally. i don't fault anyone you know almond milk drinkers or yes. beekeepers i do think it is absolutely mind-blowing to think about the fact that we pollinate most of the food we eat in this country by like shipping bees all over the country mm. instead of like propagating healthy bioregional like biodiversity in all of those locations you know so it's more right. of a problem of the, the system that we live within than it is like the fault of the people who are sort of i don't know hogtied to the system at this point absolutely like it's the system set up to make the individuals feel at fault for things that are entirely out of our control and yeah exactly and there's, of course there's little things that we can do but yes everything Anne's just said also i just want to mention that it would be a really cool video game to be like a beekeeper having to travel <laughs> to pollinate plants and like learning about why bees are important <laughs> i love that it would also be a like bring back of the tetris game 
same because yes. you have to figure out how to like load all the beads. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll workshop this. <laughs> we'll kind of come back to this. Um, so oh. before we, I want to talk more about um, the parallels between beekeeping and, and games like Tetris. Before we get to that, like just, I'm sure you get this question all the time, but why are bees so important to the planet? Why is it so important that we need to, you know, everyone's heard the quote, save the bees, but like, why? Cool. Um, yeah. So, so first of all, I think it's important to make a distinction between honeybees and like indigenous endemic or native bees. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all pollinators are important and that includes bats and butterflies um, and, and different types of native bees because they pollinate the plants around us, not just our food source plants, but they allow basically, um, I call them nature's fluffers, right? They like allow (laughs) sexual activity to happen (laughs) between two stationary like um, creatures and they Mm. facilitate that. And, um, yeah, so they it's they're they're necessary to the bioregions where they are because they are supporting that pollination in a number of different plants. Um, for us, they're important because they pollinate a lot of foods that are or a lot of plants that are our food sources, which means that we get a higher quality of of fruit or vegetable, um, and we also have like higher yields of fruits and vegetables. So, um, and particularly things like fruits things that grow on trees, um, veggies like annuals, a little bit less with honeybees, but, um, but bees are important for like bumblebees are important for pollinating tomatoes, for example. So there's, there's lots of different connections to different pollinators being crucial for different foods that we eat or plants that grow in our bioregion. And, uh, as someone who works with bees a lot, like, I think a lot of people aren't, have some hesitation. They hear bees and the immediate response is fear. Maybe that's just me, but <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it because bees are friend. But like, what are bees like? Do they have personalities? Like, like what do you observe? What do you love when you observe They're bees? So cute, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think, so, like, when you think about honeybees. I do think that there are like individual bees that have different types of personalities, but like when we think about honeybees, they're a super organism. So you actually see the, the personality expression more in the hive and the behavior Mm. inside of the hive, um, as, as a whole. And then also with Queens, like we have an array of different, what we call like personalities in our Queens. Mm. Some of them are like, they're like really mean and sassy. And like, when you go to catch them, they'll like, buzz and they'll like bite your hands with their mandible and stuff like that <laughs> and then and then we have other ones that like hide on like uh-huh. you're looking for them and they uh-huh. it must be just something with the sunlight hitting them that they'll just like freeze up and like mm. move all slow and try to hide from you um like i'm not here yeah like i'm not the disappearing queens <laughs> um yeah and then there's other queens who um who like move really fast. Like they start like running throughout the whole hive, which gets the whole hive running. So then you Mm. get these like wild spirals of bees just like moving around, which is crazy magic looking thing. It looks like they're like casting a spell. (laughs) And they dance, Um, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Like, and the hives, they, 
so the the individual worker bees dance the foragers in particular so these are bees who are like a little bit older and they mm. go out they f- they only fly when they reach a certain age i think it's 12 days but i can't remember um so they only fly when they reach just a certain age and then they fly around looking for food or water or whatever their like assigned resource that they need to bring back is um and when they find what they're looking for they go back to the hive and you watch them on the frame like mm. basically they'll run all over all the like sister worker bees to get their attention because when they <laughs> they like vibrate to communicate so when one bee sits on top of the other and like goes like this it's like yeah. hey 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 so <laughs> that one bee will like run all over the frame doing that until like all the bees are facing in the same direction and then oh proceed to do this like elaborate like ass shaking (laughs) (laughs) directional dance, which essentially is like, okay, so to find the food, you're going to like go over here and then you're going to like come over here and then you're going to go this way and that way. And then it'll be like at the bottom of the hill. Oh my God. Um, And then all of the, like the bees will start imitating her to like make sure they understand what the like do i have it is this it is this it Uh, (laughs) and then they'll go off to that uh to that food source and then this other thing that i love about them is when they when they like transition from one food source to another or when they get a new queen or like anytime they're like excited about something when you're Mm. opening the hive like a change has happened Mm. they they have this sort of like sassy, like giddy, like, like, yeah, like sort of attitude <laughs> where they're all just like sort of shimmying. And um, it's just that like, like when you're like a kid and you're like excited about something and you're like anticipating something happening, it's like mm. that kind of energy that you can just like see them all like, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah, nice attitude to have. Yeah. A good attitude to change. And they're so fuzzy. Um <laughs> They have like fuzzy little little collars that they wear, and then they have these like fuzzy little heads with three dots on the top. I don't know. They're just so mm. dang stinking cute. Mm. And when they sleep, they just stand like perfectly still. <laughs> and you want to just pet them? <laughs> do you ever pet them? <laughs> I definitely do pet them. <laughs> um, definitely. I know it's like there's a lot of beekeepers like trending on TikTok right now. And it's like a big thing for like people to go in like barehanded, like gripping bees by the handful and lifting Mm -hmm. them out. Is that kind of like, what do you think about that kind of stuff? Is it for show? Is it if you have Um, a relationship with bees, is that okay? Yeah. So I, there, I've been sort of loosely paying attention to the, the upheaval on the internet. This is, um, there's a young woman. I think her handles are like Texas Bee Works or, or mm-hmm. something like that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, she's a bee removal specialist. So she goes out and does what we call cutouts in the industry or, or um, taking hives out of places where they have like made a home and need to be relocated, whether it's like in the side of someone's house or like in a water meter or in literally anything in Florida. And this is like particularly a big industry in Florida and Texas where the Mm. bee season is sort of never ending. Mm. Um, There's just a lot more swarms and reproduction and a lot more bees. Um, Yeah. I think that Erica's work is like really well done. Like her content is very beautifully uh, created. 
I think that um, it's also important to mitigate that with like making sure people understand that she's a professional and like she knows what she's doing. And like for a professional beekeeper to read a hive and decide that a situation Mm. is safe enough to be not wearing equipment and like having their hair down and setting up the entire aesthetic of the situation. Mm. Um, they're, they're needing to have the skills to be able to assess whether that's safe or not. If she wasn't a professional, she wouldn't be able to assess the safety of, of like putting, put taking those risks for herself. Mm. Right. She would misread cues and then like end up getting chased out of the spaces that she's in. Mm -hmm. Um, but she knows what she's doing. Um, and I think in that, in that respect and in being like a, an incredibly prolific content creator. I have a lot of uh, respect for her work. Um, I think that I could say things about what algorithms show on (laughs) social media feeds, like blonde hair and blue eyes and white skin Mm -hmm. and like femme aesthetics and how I find that unfortunate Mm. because I want to see a more, diverse range of beekeepers and farmers and agriculturalists both on my instagram and other social media feeds and like in real life and real time and i want to see a world where that's not only accessible but like celebrated and Mm -hmm. um and that the attention that's coming through those social media filters is not just being stacked towards like white cis hetero content creators. So Mm -hmm. I think like I hold this duality of like, she's a great creator and I have respect for what she's doing and she's really prolific on social media. And like, I really wish that that kind of access through the social media filters was told more stories. Absolutely. Yeah. The cottage core aesthetic is sort of limited in what it, Mm -hmm. depicts as Mm -hmm. being appropriate. Yeah. You have this, Ange has this really cool TEDx talk that folks should check out about um, how bees can help us um, embrace change, which you've spoken to a little bit. Mm. Um, And I'm just wondering if, if you could speak to, you know, outside of, we talked a little bit about what we can do as individuals and and outside of, you know, planting pollinator friendly plants and avoiding pesticides Mm. and, and learning, um, you know, about indigenous connections to the earth and, um, you know, for white folks and non-indigenous folks, like thinking about our place in sort of, um, you know, how we're impacting communities and land that we're, that we're taking up and stuff like that. Like, what can we do as individuals to help heal our relationship to the earth? Or what, what what do you think we need to do as a people? Maybe not Mm. about individuals, but what do you think needs to happen to start that healing? Yeah. I I think that that question is, is kind of identity specific as you've already alluded Mm. to. Um, And so for me as a white settler person, I I will, I'll speak to like what that journey has looked like. Yeah. Um, I, uh, there's a lot of intentionality to where I live right now, uh, mm. like regionally sp- sp- specific. Um, this is the first place that uh, anyone in my family lived when they came to the U.S. Mm. Um, they were like migrants and of, of people who were experiencing a genocide. Um, and when I sort of like 
I don't know, it was in my mid twenties, I really wanted to prioritize like healing up through my genealogical lineage. Mm. So like understanding who my people were, where we came from, like what we were before we were white, uh, Mm. what we gave up for that privilege and proximity to whiteness um, and what impacts that had on us, like as Mm. individuals. Um, For me, like I come from a like conservative military family. Mm. And so that meant undoing a lot of um, harms and trauma related to the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex as well. Um, And and like then I think I felt like prepared to be like, oh, and like the natural world, like like rehealing and reconnecting to land, which was really important to my great grandparents. Um, and, ha- and like reclaiming that relationship. And in that journey, I actually like learned about beekeeping and beekeeping in uh, Ukraine, which is where my great grandparents are from. Mm. Um, and the value of like the linden uh, or in the, in the U S it's called the basswood tree. Um, yeah. And, and so felt called to that as a way of like trying to practice further connection to my ancestry and lineage. Um, and I don't know, I guess for me, I think I, I made this very conscious decision to bring bees into my life, not knowing like the whole world I was opening myself up to. At all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that's on a, a sort of spiritual level, uh, definitely a spiritual level, but also just like, there is something about saying yes to like working with honeybees that just like keeps opening up these different opportunities to, to keep connecting, you know, like, Mm. do you want to go further down this rabbit hole and even further and even further? Um, That's been just this powerful and affirming way of me knowing like, this is something, this is like something deeply ancestral for me. It's, it's, it's healing. It's like helping me understand time and space and self and like, and, um, and like place. And it's also pushing me to be more migratory, which is actually the type of beekeeping that happens in Slavic countries is you would actually mm. migrate the whole region to catch different nectar flows on different mountain ranges. Mm. Um, yeah, I think I just babbled on for a really long time and I'm not sure that I've coherently answered that question, but <laughs> Oh yeah, I think yeah, you, <laughs> like, like I guess I guess something that I that you touched on in your TED talk that I thought was really um interesting was just around changing the way that we like I feel like as humans we see we collectively like not like you and mm. I like see nature as something to be dominated or something to be um right. it's not controlled clear. yeah right mm-hmm. like how mm-hmm. can we sort of change the our relationship to nature as as people like I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that yeah yeah I guess for me I like that's that's also been a long journey of just not it, it's literally changing the way that you think about something, right? It's it's yeah. like the same. It's a similar experience to transness for me. Like, I was like, oh, no, I like oh, God, it's like I feel like the, the experience of being queer and then and discovering my transness and mm-hmm. that led to so many more. And I think too, when you said getting into bees open keeps opening more doors. It's like the more you go down 
like it's like the the truer you understand yourself, the more you start seeing the connections to everything else around yeah. you, and all the way down yeah. to our our animal selves and being yeah. in nature. Anyway, keep you you go. I just yeah, I was yeah, you read no, my I, mind. <laughs> I agree with that. All of that. I think that the understanding myself as someone and something that contained multitudes, right? And wasn't just the things that society or my family or the people around me told me I should or should not be. Um, it changed the language of how I think about the world. So it changed what was like possible, what connections I could see between things, um, what connections I could see between me and the natural world um, or draw parallels to to what's happening with honeybees and mycology and like what's happening mm. with our social systems and structures. Um, so I think in that way, saying yes to my own transness, uh, like allowed me to say yes to changing like the, the etymology of how I think about the world, you know, like mm. how I use language, how mm. much is possible, like whether I should be calling something mine or mm. like, like my land that I live on and, mm -hmm. and, and how much of that is really tied up in settler colonialism too. Right. Yeah. So when I start sort of unearthing, well, where does this language come from? You, you see those connections and it, it's not going to change the whole world for me to change how I speak and think about things, but it is going to change something inherent in me to mm -hmm. change how I think and speak about things. And for me, that's led to more compassion for myself, but also more compassion externally. Um, it's also led me to think less about the idea of human superiority and more about the idea that like we are just as connected and um, intertwined with the world around us as as bees, as mycelium, like whether or not we choose to accept that reality, mm. I think is, 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 is a tension point of current humanity. Um, but we are like staring down the barrel of that right now. Right. So <laughs> that's going to be an interesting thing mm -hmm. to watch play out. Right. We say as we enter the like <laughs> third day of a tropical storm warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And that, yeah, that, I mean, the hurricane season in Florida is at least mm -hmm. a month longer than it was 10 years ago when I was living there in my 20s. You know, mm -hmm. like it's and I track like I track when it starts, like when the first tropical storms start, because I have bees and right, employers in Florida yeah. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> um, and family and friends and, and like many different layers of community at this point. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's earlier and earlier like every year for the last four years that I've kept track. Um, totally. Yeah. And so, Anja, someone who, in addition to your farm and, and beekeeping work, um, you're also a consultant who works with organizations um, to kind of talk about how, like I was reading on your website, which folks can find in the show description, um, just about how you use nature as inspiration for mm -hmm. um, helping people collaborate more effectively. So like, what, what, does, what do you think nature has to teach us about working together, collaborating better? Yeah, so um, this sort of builds on what we were talking about earlier. I think that we are inherently, inherently in our culture is the very white, cis, hetero, structural hierarchy, right? Mm -hmm. White man on top, people, everyone else fall in line behind mm -hmm. uh, that dude. Um, 
(laughs) And sometimes power is like shared with that dude, but mostly Mm. it's like that dude making like is the top of the pyramid. And Mm -hmm. maybe there are people thinking radical thoughts and um, practicing radical things below that person who might advise them. But for the most part, it's sort of like a pyramid feeding up to the white dude in organizational cultures I've been in. Yeah. Um, So, and, and I've always worked in the nonprofit sector that's just been a part of my career uh for the last 12 or 15 years um and so when i was was always sort of working on my farming and agricultural project and working in the nonprofit sector and thinking daydreaming mostly uh in long meetings about the connections between the natural world and the human world and where it felt like we had things to learn from ecological balances and non-hierarchical structures and Mm. um really challenging the way that we think about an organizational culture and uh yeah and then a few years ago i had the opportunity to like play that out in an organization that I was working with. Um, And I realized that uh, we have a lot to learn from our friends, the honeybees. And I think, I think about it in, when I start breaking it down for orgs, it's really like communication is something that like, we don't have clear, concise, consistent communication in organizational culture a lot. Things are mm. implied or mm. unspoken or uh, supposed to be learned and understood. Um, to, you know, like, typecasts are supposed to be played into. And so... Yeah. So, yeah. So, starting to to sort of unearth what would be possible if we had more clear and concise communication was one of my, my first questions. Um, you know, I have, I have like a team of folks that I just worked with recently and they're all young folks of color and their organizational culture in their like sub pod of the organization is flat. They have weekly check-ins with each other. They have a, you know, specific Slack channels to work on their projects. Um, and they spend time with each other intentionally outside of work to like build and cultivate relationship. Right. So like, (laughs) (laughs) what would it look like if organizations were more like that if we were actually taking leadership from um from folks who were fostering flat organizational cultures and uh prioritizing leadership as something that happens across a team Mm. um but also realizing that we are more you know that we are not insects and we can't all just be like productive and active and like active all the time um so how do we or sort good of dis- dancers yeah or good dancers or like <laughs> <laughs> we're not always going to be great at communication and so mm. how do we catch that humanity in ourselves too and like hold space for that within organizational culture is important and that's always been important to me because i'm a neurodiverse person who's worked in a lot of places where i've had to like really really cram a very oddly shaped peg into a square hole, you know? (laughs) Yes. So how do we create more space for um, the diversity of human experience while also creating more flat organizational cultures that allow that, allow that diversity to thrive um, Mm. rather than force it into uh, a shape that doesn't quite work. Absolutely. So, Ange, 
What's your, if any, personal history with video games? All right, I was thinking about this this afternoon. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so I am, th- how old am I? I am 37 years old. Uh, so I, I know what it was like to use floppy disks and I know, (laughs) 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 and like early gaming consoles, but I also grew up in like a working poor household. So the only real access that I had to gaming Mm. consoles was like my cousin who had Mm. like Mortal Kombat. It's something that we played a lot. And, um, and then as I got a little bit older and my like, parents got a little bit older. Uh, I think we had a couple of hand-me-down or secondhand um, Nintendo uh, sort of iterations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I remember Super Mario. And then I think that the last video game that I really played um, before my brother became like the all encompassing video game console person <laughs> was a PlayStation game called Crash Bandicoot. Do you oh, remember yeah. that? Oh my God. All those <laughs> apples and boxes and spinning, spinning around and <laughs> like different levels. And I remember I, we, my brother and I would play that game and like just stand in the living room and like jump up and down and like, you know, just like, yeah. I don't know. It just was a really funny. The first VR game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-VR, but you were thinking that you were inside the television. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then my my personal, I always had like a Game Boy and I mm. loved to play Tetris, which is a very like deep irony because then so i love to play tetris both my parents when i was growing up were in logistics so they worked for like oh my gosh and like they literally packed boxes for a living oh my gosh like like packaged boxes for a living and so they love to play tetris we had like a family like you know tetris board um whoa uh uh-huh it was cute and uh (laughs) yeah so so I think it was this time around that I was in Florida and we're packing. We have, we run these like little square uh, beehives. They're smaller than regular beehives and they're easy to move around and split up into small boxes. Um, And so we have these little square beehives and I'm packing them in the van and like packing them in the van. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I'm just a product of like Tetris and my parents being like in logistics. Tetris trained you for this. I am so good at packing things in a van or car that like, you know, I'll, I'll come to a site with a team and people will be like, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. I'm like, it'll fit. And people are like, what? I'm like, I don't know. I can't do the math, but I can tell you in my spatial awareness mm. brain that all of this stuff is going to fit in there. <laughs> Yo, uh, honestly, that is a real skill. Like I am, I am the person who would show up being like, help there's too many boxes <laughs> we don't know what to do and i would be the person blown away by you saying it will fit because will fit. I, there's nothing more stressful and overwhelming to me than a pile of things that need to go into another thing <laughs> <laughs> oh that's like my whole life it's just oh a God. pile of things that need to go into another thing <laughs> oh God. What do you, why do you think it feels so good to organize? Like, what is it about organization and, and that kind of like logistical thinking that appeals to you? Oh, I feel like 
it just feels like a challenge to overcome. Cause like I am, I'm, I'm a person who easily gets emotionally flooded and easily gets overwhelmed by mm. like too many projects or tasks. Um, Mood. but it feels, <laughs> it feels like it's like, okay, here's a challenge and it's, I can see all of it in front of me and like, I can figure out a few different problem, like solutions to the problem and then just like apply them and get, mm. end up with this like really satisfying end result either of it fitting in or all coming out in a safe and effective manner mm. i don't know it's like controlled ca- like there's so much chaos in beekeeping and in any agricultural pursuit and then you get to like sort of organize it all in this one moment and have it all fit in the space right it's like a small win mm. <laughs> absolutely absolutely Just a small win well, in a space where like you know i'm I am at the whim of weather and mm. like honeybee disease and like um, climate change all the time, all the time. Mm. Um, and so it feels really good to find those like small successful wins. I'm also very into effective systems that make it easier mm. to work, like mm. working it's cheesy, but working smarter, not harder <laughs> is like, I have only this one body, you know, (laughs) and I want to do this thing for as long as this body will Mm. let me do this thing. So it it feels important to like find the hacks in it that will, or the cheat codes that will make it a little bit easier than it is. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. One more like little gay question for you. Um, What has beekeeping taught you about yourself? Ooh, um, It has taught me, I think I knew this already, but it has reinforced how absolutely stubborn I am. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the it'll fit. Um, (laughs) You weren't picking up what I was putting down. That is, I am incredibly stubborn. Um, Yeah, so it it has reinforced that for sure, which is is a characteristic that I think is like an Achilles heel, but also something I really love about myself. It's like, I don't accept defeat i don't accept that things won't fit in a space i Mm. don't i'm just like this is possible and Mm -hmm. i know it is and we're gonna make it happen um so it's taught me about uh, that it's taught me a lot about um patience and timing Mm. i am not a patient person uh by nature and it's a learned it's definitely a learned pattern or behavior for me Mm. uh And you can't rush, like you can't rush spring and you can't rush summer. You can't like make the bees be ready before they are. You have to plan and then you have to go with the flow of like what is happening. So So humbling, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Big time. Um, Yeah. And that timing, it like actually really matters. Like I can try to push, Mm. I can try to push spring or like push my bees to make more queens or like push, Mm. um, you know, my, my business's capacity to produce something, but like when it's, it's planned and then the timing is honored, things just flow a lot, uh, more beautifully and with a whole lot less stress. And that Mm. is, as I'm getting older, something I'm really leaning into, Mm. (laughs) just like let things happen at the pace at which they're going to happen instead of trying to make them different. Yeah. Yeah. And um, where can people follow They Keep Bees and find you online? Yeah. um, So you can find us at They Keep Bees on Instagram and 
TikTok. Um, I'm a like new foray or into TikTok, so be kind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. Um, yeah, but that for you page is brutal Oof. sometimes. It's a vortex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we have a website, theykeepbees.com, um, which is where you can sign up for our newsletter. I send out like mm, every couple of weeks during the season, I send out updates about what we're doing, what's going on, what the bees are doing and different events and um, opportunities for community gathering that we have here. Um, and any classes that we have when we're on the road, because we travel between the Southeast and the Northeast, we do a lot of like speaking and um, little pop-up classes around the East Coast. So, yeah, that's where you can find out about all that and um, how we raise bees in Queens. Amazing. Ange, thank you so much for joining us with Pixel Therapy. It's been an absolute pleasure to share space with you. You too. Thanks for asking. for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month, plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can show your support for free by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts and following us on Instagram at pixeltherapypod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythoughpodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they're building around pop culture news, reviews, and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. Thanks so much to Anne for this week's side quest recommendation. I'm so excited to talk to you about the Susu Community Farm. Um, it is an Afro-Indigenous stewarded farm and land-based healing center in southern Vermont that elevates Vermont's land and foodways. In their words, the Susu Community Farm says, we do this by co-creating a life-affirming and culturally relevant platform for Black, Indigenous people of color, youth, under-resourced folks, and allies to thrive and experience safety and connection while beginning to develop the tools and agency to heal from the trauma of colonization. Through collective community, we aspire to co-create an equitable and just culture for the global majority to thrive in Vermont that centers access to safe and affirming food, community, and job opportunities. To find out more about this really amazing community farm and a community project, um, check out susucommunityfarm.org. That's S-U-S-U communityfarm.org. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Pixel Therapy. therapy. Yeah. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>